Uh, Gage, we're not using this, are we? Can I get this out of my face? <coughs> Let me ask you, what do you think about the war in Iraq? <coughs> if you noticed here, we're very informal here. We, we don't have any rules to follow other than please keep your seat while I'm preaching. And even that's hard sometimes. But anyway, we just have fun. Aren't you glad you can have fun and be saved? Amen. Tell you what, I am. And we just thank God for all that the Lord does here. We are very informal. We just have fun loving each other, loving the Word of God. And Jana, would you please not talk when I'm talking? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to do a lesson here, and you guys are... Conv- pat- was that a, is that a recipe you guys are passing out there for fried chicken? She still ain't got it yet. Thank you. Oh, it's okay. No, I'm just kidding. I am just kidding. I feel terrible now. I was just kidding. Hey, I got my tux done yesterday. Did. Okay, now we got all that business done. We can get back to the Bible here. As I was saying, as you probably have deduced, we are very informal here. We're glad you're here. And we just have fun. But when it comes to opening up the book, we, we, we get serious about the Word of God. And we, we, we're so thankful that that God has given us the ability to, to have a Bible where we can just really focus on the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 2. As you know, we have been studying the book of Nehemiah. We have been coming at it for a long time from the aspect of the gates that goes into the city. And we've talked about how that those gates really represent for our church uh, open opportunities. How that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was built around the city of Jerusalem. And into that city, there was nine gates that they went in, and each one of those gates uh, was a different gate that had a different name. We showed how that the, in the New Testament, God's program's a local church. And the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a picture of that. And just as the city of God had gates that went in every church out to have openings that people come in through, we talked about the sheep gate, sacrifice, the water gate, the preaching ministry. We talked about the uh, aspect of the, uh, the valley gate, compassion, all the aspects that a church needs to really function. So we stayed with that nine or ten weeks, came through each one of those gates, spent a couple of weeks on each one of them. And then last week, we, uh, we talked about the inside, behind the scenes, how that when God builds something, like a church or your life, When God builds something, He not only does it outwardly, that's what we see, but there's always an inward work. And we went behind the scenes last week and we looked at Nehemiah, one of the most incredible stories in all the Bible, how God put Nehemiah in the right place, the right time, with the right circumstances to do the work for God. We made that parallel to where we're at in our own lives. God giving us the right men, the right place, the right time to build a work for God. The parallels are unbelievable. We saw how that God's men and God's women need to have a burden. We saw last week how that that burden turns into their prayer. That prayer brings them to the place where they they have the wisdom of God to understand what God is really doing. And the whole thing is built around the right timing. God in His infinite wisdom and His sovereign knowledge putting things together in a fashion that get done in God's timing. Now, that left us last week with a very happy ending. And uh, I, honest to goodness, I would like to stop the message right there and stop the series right there and say, hey, everything is great. Here we are. God wanted a city built. God got some men, some women at the right time, at the right place, and the right timing of God with the right burden, the right prayer. We've looked at the gates. The gates are built. Everything is fine. Everything is ready to go. God's plan is up and running. The nation of Israel is back in the land. God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Everything is going to be good, and we could end it right there. But that's not, that's not really reality. Yet, the message I, we're going to preach today would be a message that uh, everybody needs. If you're a young Christian here, you certainly need this message. If you're an old Christian here, you certainly need to remember this, because you probably already know it, but, you know, uh, repetition is the price of learning. And we come down here in chapter 2, in verse uh, 1 through 9, is really where we focused last week. And we talked about how that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. How that Nehemiah was the place where he, uh, he, really, uh, he really had a burden for the program and the ministry of God. 
and how that God in the right timing and all the right circumstances brought him to the place where he put the men around him and then he's in there before the king. The king says, you look sad today, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah tells him, uh, verse 5, And I said unto the king, If it please the king, if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah unto the city my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. He tells the king, I'm burdened because my city, the city of my God, the focal point of all history, lies in ruin. And the king says, well, go on back and build it. He says, I'll even pay for it. So when you come down through verses 6, 7, and 8, 9, you get all of that. And verse 9 says this, Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letter, now the king had said, captains of the army and the horsemen with me. Everything is perfect. You've got now the city is going to be built. The walls are going to be put up. The gates are going to be back on. The king's going to pay for it. He had a burden. God brought the right man at the right timing. And seemingly everything is in the right place just like here. We got the rival. We got the people. We got everything. Everybody's excited and we're ready to go. And we're going to build a work for God. Let's just stop right there and make it a happy ending. Sorry, we can't. Verse 9 is great, but look at verse 10. When Sabalat the Hormonite, Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. We're going to talk today about the opposition that comes. We've seen the gates being built. We've seen all of the things happen that are great. But now we've got to deal with the reality of the ministry. We've got to deal with the reality of you and I as individuals coming together, building a ministry, building a church, reaching people for Christ. The reality of that is the devil isn't going to sit still when that happens. Some of you already, I know from personally talking with you, have felt the opposition. Opposition is scary. And today, and this is probably going to be a two-week message, but today all I want to do is help you understand opposition. I want you to know that uh, whatever you're going through, Whatever price right now you're paying to be here. Now, I don't believe for a minute that the devil's going to come down and just kill us all in church or blow the roof off. That's not how he operates. No, he's going to be much subtler than that. When the devil is going to stop this work, if he's going to put the hammer to what God is going to do, and he always tries to, that's history. I mean, the movement of history is nothing more than this. And I've told you this before. History is nothing more than God having a plan. And God moving in a direction to fulfill that plan, and the devil moving in an opposition to stop that plan. That's the movement of God. That's the movement of history. That's all that it is. And if you can get that basic fact down, then you're, you're halfway there of understanding that what you're experiencing, and when it comes, even though it's unnerving, and even though you don't like it, and even though it may frighten you, there's some things that we can do. The first thing we can do is under, simply understand the opposition. You know, you don't have to do this. Just listen to me for a minute. I want to write it down. It's fine. If you would go back to the book of Acts, you will find systematically this theory proven. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that God begins to do some great things. The Bible says that they gladly receive the Word of God, and there's great revival in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. You come to Acts chapter 4, verse 1, and bang, the Sadducees stand up and they resist it. God moves, the devil moves. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33. It talks about the apostles preaching with great power. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. The Sadducees ride up with indignation to stop them. In Acts chapter 5, verse 15, the Bible says there's great healing and the Word of God is preached and people are being saved. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. The Sadducees raise up the scribes and the Pharisees and they beat the apostles and try to stop them. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, God brings Stephen to the forefront. What a great man. He preaches probably the greatest message in all the New Testament to the nation of Israel. Tells them what they've done. And the Bible says that this was the opportunity that they could have, that they could receive the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, he preaches to them all down through that chapter. In Acts chapter 7, verse 54, the devil rises up the religious leaders and they kill Stephen. All through history, Starting in the book of Acts, which really starts church history, that's what you find. You find that God moves in a direction to do something, and the devil moves in opposition to stop it. It's true in history. 
We don't have time to give you a, a complete history lesson this morning, but I'll tell you this. You can go back and you study the Reformation when God cracked uh, the, uh, the Roman church and, and sent out and made it possible for the gospel to go around the world. The devil started a counter-Reformation. And 200 years after that, the Reformation is pretty much dead. In America, I'll give you a quick history of this in America. We've talked about this on Bible study a couple of times. In America, you find that God starts in the East Coast and there's seven great revivals, great awakenings that come across from the 1600s right up to the 1900s of the Spirit of God bringing revival to this country. And in every one of them, you find one of the American cults coming in right after the revival takes place to take the edge off and to stop it. So don't be surprised. Do not be surprised if you decide to do what's right. If you fall in love with the Word of God, if you say, Oh, I really want to make God the God of my life and I really want to do what's right, do not be surprised if you decide to do it and bang, the opposition comes. Now my job is to help you understand it. And really, understanding it is really the key. I'm not afraid of anything I can't understand. Or, excuse me, I'm not afraid of anything I can't understand. It's when you don't understand it. It's the unknown. It's the X. What's going on that really frightens you? And for you and for me as Christians, it's no problem dealing with things when we understand it. And the first thing I want you to understand is a great verse. You need to write this one down. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 simply says, Yes, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Let me translate that for you down where you can get it. If you're going to serve God, you're going to get it in the neck. You're going to get it. Well, why shouldn't you? He paid the price on the cross for you to live. Why shouldn't you pay a little bit down here to serve Him? You will. You will. Now, my job, as I said, is to help you understand that. My job is to help you get to the place where you don't fear that. And to give you some insight into how to deal with it because it is dealable. It is something that when opposition comes, you just need to be smarter than the opposition. And you get smarter than the opposition by simply understanding what the Bible says. So we're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about that. Now look at the pattern. You can see it even here in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 9, the king says, go. In chapter 2 verse 10, Sambalet says, he, the Bible says he's grieved and he tried to stop him. In chapter 2 verse 18, they say, let us rise up and build. In chapter 2, 19, uh, Salabat says, the Bible says that he, he despised them. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 32, it shows them building the gates, putting them back on. In chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says Sambalat rises up in indignation and mocks them. Now, I'm just going to tell you, and I've said it before, I'm going to say it over and over and over and yet again today till you understand it. Opposition to you and me, when we do God's work, is just part of being a Christian. As I said early on in this message, you younger ones need to know that. You older ones who've been around for a while need to remember that. Because it's part of your spiritual growth, and with growth comes adversity. You need to understand that. You say, well, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible, except the Bible says, greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Opposition may come, so what? Greater is he that is in you that is in the world. My job is to help you get the, the right perspective of opposition. Because it's going to come. I know in some of your life we've talked about it already. It has already knocked on your door. For a Christian, every adverse... And this, if you don't hear anything else in the message, if you do not hear anything else that I say, go home with this today because this is worth a million dollars. If you can grasp this, and it's easy, you will. For a Christian, every bad thing in this life will have one or two, one or the other, effect in your life. It, it simply will. And for a Christian, now an unsaved man or woman, you're out there, you're on your own. But for a child of God, when adversity comes, it'll have either one effect or the other effect in your life, adversity comes for a child of God and it will either build character or it will reveal character. Simple as that. When adversity comes, it will build character in your life in many instances. Character is not something you're born with. I mean, we're all born characters, but the character I'm talking about, you're not born with. You develop it. 
You get a good mom and dad with a good family or you get good teaching and a good training and you instill and you build character in our lives to the place where we become. You've got, uh, you've got, you've got children. I got a little grandbaby. You got little, you little kids that are, that are babies. Some of you have kids that you're raising right now. And let me tell you something. Do not deceive yourself. Those kids, as sweet as they look, as sweet as they are, as much as they bring joy and pleasure into your life, as much as you love them and you would do anything for them, you can, the greatest gift you can give them is character. You don't give it to them by just standing by and, and letting it come happen. It doesn't happen that way. Character is something that you build. I, I never, I, I'm, I'm against raising kids where you take all the adversity out of their life. Now, my job is to protect them as a parent. That's your job. We need to look and protect our kids. But let me tell you something. When you put them in a glass bubble that you devoid them of any adversity, they grow up in an adverse world not knowing how to deal with it and not building character. Because I'm telling you, adversity builds character. It makes you forced to look at the circumstances of life and do the right thing. I'll tell you something else. Adversity, in many cases, will reveal character. Because character inside you means that when you're out there on your own, you see, when you take time as a parent, when I take time as a pastor right now to take young Christians, just like you sweet moms take time to build character into your little babies, when I take time as a pastor with you young Christians, you young couples who want to do what's right that maybe don't have all the ideas and the handles yet on family, Bible, your life, but you want to. When I take the time to build character into you, and that's what we're doing right now. That's what the Word of God does. On Thursday night, you call it Bible study. I call it character building. We take the Word of God and we put it into your life. We teach you things about the Bible. We teach you things on Sunday morning about the Word of God. You're here to get it. And my friend, when you're here to get it, and you get it, and it builds character, it's someplace down the line, you're going to be tested. And when you're tested, that character that has been built now will be revealed then. All things in life. I've ne I don't know of a third thing. All things in life for a child of God, that are adverse, will either build character or will reveal character. Now, you need to understand this. The mark of a real strong Christian, the mark of a child of God that is mature, is not when everything goes good. <laughs> Who can't love God when it's good? Who can't enjoy the things of God and give God thanks when everything is going good in life? That's why the Bible says in all things give thanks. You give God thanks in everything. Even the bad things. And you do that because you recognize that through opposition is how you grow. We're going to talk about the different kinds of opposition in just a little bit. But I'm setting the stage here and telling you that opposition... Opposition to you wanting to do what's right is absolutely okay. The mark of a child of God is not when, when everything is going good that you can get along with God. It's like raising your kids. Somebody says to me, well, we've got really good kids. And they sit there and they come to church every Sunday and they look like they're good kids. But I've learned this. You know what proof of godly kids are? It isn't the fact that they're here this morning, though I'm glad you're here. You know the proof that your kids are really where they need to be? It's not the fact that you can get them to come to church. It's the fact that when things go wrong and you have to deal with them, how do they respond? That's the test. In the test of what everything... I know, I know pastors right now who have kids that are out in the world and they think because they're living at home and they, and what they've done is they, they want to save face in all of the area of ministry with the people in their churches. So what they've done, they've created a palatable situation where the boy or the girl can live at home and everything can go fine and it seems like it's fine until the kid wants to do this and the dad says, you can't do that. And then you see the real issue. 
We kid ourselves into thinking as long as everything is nice and our kids are home and we're having a great time and everything, that that's really godly Christianity. No, the real test for a child is like the real test for your marriage. It's like the real test for you as an individual. When your world goes to pieces and you are forced with a right or wrong situation, it's how you respond to it. Certainly, I am not responsible for the bad situations that happen in life. To me, no more than you are to you. I am not responsible when bad things happen in my life, and you're not responsible when bad things happen to your life, but we are responsible is how we react to them. And that comes back to character. Building character. Now, that's why I'm, I tell everybody that comes into this church, I'll spend time with you in the Bible one-on-one. I don't care what you want to talk about. I don't care if we can talk about Santa Claus, UFOs, the death of Christ, Babylonian captain. I don't care because all of it builds character. Anytime you and I are you by yourself or we teach the Bible on Sunday morning or Thursday night or whenever, whenever the Word of God is taught, it produces quality character in your life that you're going to need because the opposition is going to come. And when it comes... Character then will be tested and revealed. I've watched life for many years now, and I I know that's true. We are a lot like the nation of Israel. That's why I chose this message uh, about the gates, because I saw it in its entirety, that we as a little church, you and we have here young Christians and old Christians, men and women that have been with me forever, who stand on the Word of God. And I thank God for you. And then I equally thank God for the young ones that have come in, in the, since we've been together. In a short time, we have just been, we have just been, you know, God's given us young men, young couples, uh, time and time again that show up, that are good people, that, that just need to be taught the Word of God. And I thank God for And that's what it's all about. But we are a lot like the nation of Israel. They were little. We don't have a million dollar budget a year to do all the things that we should do, could do, would do. I mean, ten people decide not to come to church on our Sunday morning and it shows. We're vulnerable. We have couples here that, that, uh, and people here that, you know, that, that, that are young, they're struggling, they want to learn what's right, and they, they want to do what's right, and I'm telling you, the opposition is going to come, and the devil is going to try to crush them, just like he tried to crush them here. They were vulnerable back there. They were, they weren't a big nation like they were when they come out of Egypt. There wasn't five or six million strong with mighty men of valor. They have been whipped, they have been beaten, and they're down in a world that is totally against them. And they're trying to rise up to do the work of God, just like you are, just like we are. And the devil, as they try to raise up, tries to step them down. They're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. They're trying to do God's work in a world that hated God's work. I'm not talking about an unsaved world. I'm talking about a Christian world. There are men and women in your life that claim to be Christians that will give you the worst opposition you ever had of trying to do what's right with God. The Christian world without a, that, that had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. And I'll tell you, as a church, we need to understand. As a church, we need to understand, first of all, and, 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 and Nehemiah understood it. I mean, we need to protect the people that God gives us. Oh, it's great to have a great time and talk about all the fun we have. And that's good, and that's fine, and I'm all for that. But the bottom line is, we have to protect the children that God gives us, the men and women that God brings in. Nehemiah understood it. That's why in chapter 8, verse 1 through 8, when he talks about preaching the Word of God, he gathers them together as one man. Ephesians chapter 4, that great book that talks about the church, talks about the, the, the unity of the Spirit, uh, being one, one Spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one God, one baptism. And, and he says in, in Nehemiah chapter 8 that they were brought together as one man. He understands that we have to hang together in God's work or we'll hang separately. I, I see it. I, I don't know why pastors can't see it. I see it in everything. Why well, go out and look over in Africa and I see all the antelope and the and the uh, wallabies 
and the giraffes, the caribou. You know what they do? Their greatest enemy is a lion. And the Bible says that our greatest adversity is a lion that goeth about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know what those animals do? To keep the lions from getting them? Well, they can figure it out. They stay in herds. And they stay tight. And the more... I mean, you know what? A lion may be tough and he may be strong. And he may be the king of the beast. But you ever get kicked by an 800-pound water buffalo in the face, it tends to hurt. He may be the king of beasts, but he realizes he gets in that crowd where all those things can kick him. He's going to come out limping and hungry. Now, if they can figure it out, why can't we figure it out? Everybody in here is important. Everybody. I read in the newspaper this morning, maybe some of you saw it. There was a church in town last week that taught their people how to pray for the chiefs. You see that in the, in the, in the sports section? There's a church that, that taught a, you see that? It, it taught them how to pray for the chiefs to win. Well, I go even farther than that. I'll teach you this. I believe the greatest potential pastor in Kansas City if he just gets saved, maybe he's saved. I don't know. I can't speak for him. But I don't know that he is. I'm going to say that he's not. If he would just get saved and turn his emphasis from one thing to the other, the greatest pastor in this city would be, would be Coach Vermeil. You know why Gunther Cunningham failed? You know why Marty Schottenheimer failed? I don't know anything about football. I just like to watch the guy try to get smashed. I, I don't know anything about it. But I, I, know, I know how to make it work. Because he's using biblical principles. Remember when Marty was here, when even Gunther was here? And I like Gunther. He's my kind of guy, but he didn't have the understanding. And you know what the first understanding is? First thing he did is get rid of all the troublemakers. All the guys that was partying out and, and getting, you read about them all the time. You know why? Because he understood to win good ball games takes men with good character. And he realized that if you, you know what brings, you know what good character brings with it? It brings their work ethic. You show up to practice wanting to practice. You don't show up hungover. So he got rid of all the troublemakers. Even the media sees it. They don't understand it. They call them the character guys. They call them the good guys. He got rid of all the bad character. And then he's got a bunch of guys that, that, that they aren't saved, but they have good, solid moral principles, good work ethic, because they have character. And then he molds them into a team as one man, you'll never find one guy. I, the thing I like about him, and again, I don't know anything about football. I asked my wife. She knows much more about it than I do. I don't know anything about it. But I know the principles work because he's using, he's using the same principles that I'm using. You know what? He, you'll never interview one of those guys that'll say, look what I did. Look what I did. You know what they all do? They all say, well, it's a team effort. It's a team effort. I wouldn't have made that touchdown if so-and-so didn't block for me. You know what? He's got them thinking like one man. He's got everybody covering everybody else. Do I, do I think Dick Vermeil stayed up one night or listened to my tapes on Nehemiah and said, Oh, I know how to build a team. I'd like to think so, but I don't think so. But let me just say this. If the Wallabies can figure it out and Dick Vermeil can figure it out, why can't we figure it out? During World War II. I'll tell you another one. It's everywhere. In World War II, in the early days of World War II, we were doing daylight bombing over in Europe. The British tried it, and they said, oh, we ain't going to do this anymore. We'll do it at night. Because they were getting shot out of the sky like, uh, like mosquitoes. But we tried it. We did it. We are going to say, oh, we can do it. We were losing. I mean, B-17 had 10 guys in it. There were times when they went out with a force of 200 bombers, and 100 of them, a, a, a 1,600 guys, died. They were, Germans were just... Luftwaffe was just blowing them out of the air. And then an old general, General LeMay, got the idea. I know how to fix that, he said. So he, he refigured the whole flight pattern of all them bombers. And he made them fly in formation. Where they weren't more than 20, 30 feet apart from each other. And then, because what the Germans were doing, that the Luftwaffe were getting high in the sky, and they were coming right down through those bombers, and they were strafing them, and they were coming inside and looping and just shooting the pieces out of them. 
So LeMay said, no, 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 no. You got 800 bombers? All right, you make eight groups, put them 20 feet apart, stagger those groups so no German plane can gum down through them. they got to come on from the front or from the side or from underneath or from behind. But they can't just come down through the middle. Because here's here's an understanding. You have 600 planes. 600 planes. Those planes have 10 guns apiece on them, 50 caliber machine guns. That's 6,000 guns. Those 600 guns theoretically can shoot 600 rounds a minute. Well, let me ask you a question. What brave German pilot is going to dive down through that formation when he knows there's over 4 million bullets coming his way at one time? Why, you could close your eyes and blow them out of the sky, and that's what they were doing. I mean, when them pilots started to come, first time the German Luftwaffe tried that thing, and every gun in that thing, every radio operator, every gunner, tail gunner, ball nose gunner, every one of them called him in, coming in at 12 o'clock high, four million machine gun rounds come out that plane. That German went through there and said, I'm going home. I'm out of here. That hurt. Whoa, where was that stuff coming from? Now, if General LeMay can figure out, and you know what? You'd walk, you'd walk into the, you'd walk into the, uh, into the little buildings there where they had their briefing before the missions. You saw these signs. Every vintage picture of World War II where you go in and you see inside the barracks, inside the Quonset huts where they have their briefings and the pilots get ready. There's one big sign to remind them over and over again. You know what it was? It was fly tight formations. When you fly tight formation, Germans can't get inside to shoot us to pieces. Now, if he can figure it out, and Vermeil can figure it out, and the Wallabies can figure it out in Africa, why can't we understand that you and I are in the greatest battle in the history of the universe? There's more. Who cares if the Chiefs go to the Super Bowl or not, if men and women die and go to hell for all of eternity? Our battle, our warfare is much bigger than that and much greater than that. And the bottom line is we need to fly tight formations. We need to pull up next to each other. We need to love each other. We need to care for each other. We need to be there for each other. And you need to accept that. Boy, the plane that said, oh, I ain't flying tight. I'm my own man. Them Germans ain't going to get me. And got way out on the left flank. He got shot down. And if you think you can fly by yourself in the world that we live in, facing what the opposition that's going to come your way, we haven't got to the opposition yet. It's coming. I'm going to talk to you about it. You won't make it. You won't make it. And when Nehemiah understood that, and he saw all the opposition, so when he gathered the people together to preach to them, he pulled them together as one man in unity. Because he understood that in the tightness of God's people, the devil cannot function. In a one and a unity where everybody... And see, that's what the devil does. The devil will never destroy this church or any other church by from the outside. You know what he'll do? He'll just get one or two people on the inside. That's all he does. He's always done it that way. And though he doesn't have any candidates at this point because you're all one, I'm preaching this message to you because I'm telling you, you can't ever forget this. Because it's going to come. You say, well, where's the opposition going to come from? You know where it's going to come from? It's going to come from where it shouldn't come from. It's going to come from your friends. It's going to come from your family. It's going to come from work. It's going to come from your mom. It's going to come from your dad. It's going to come from your husband. It's going to come from your wife. Opposition will never come from where you think it comes. It'll always come from some... Because you see, if it was just somebody out there with a sign saying, don't go to church today, you just pass that by. But let me tell you something. When it's somebody you're emotionally tied to and you're emotionally attached to, it gets a lot tougher. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he makes that statement that a lot of young Christians don't understand. He says, he says if you come unto me and don't hate your father and the mother, you have no place with me. People say, well, he's really saying to hate your father and your mother and your wife and your husband? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's telling them, let me tell you something. If you read the context, he's saying, look, the opposition you're going to get into and the things that you're going to happen to you, your love for God is going to have to be so great because it may make a choice between you having to decide that person or me. You see, folks, you have to understand this. There, there, you have to see the, the, the level of this. We have to look, analyze this. 
Because the real problem here, the real problem when the opposition comes from your family, from your husband, from your wife, from your mom, from your dad, from your uncle, from your friends, the people you hang out with, that's going to come the exact same way. I'm going to show it to you here in just a minute. But the real problem is in chapter 2, verse 10. Now, understanding this, this is what the devil doesn't like. This is why, listen to me, this is why the opposition is going to come in one verse. When Sabalath, the Horbonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite. Well, let me just stop there for a second. You see that thing? The Ammonite? The Ammonite? Remember last Thursday night? Where'd the Ammonites come from? Lot. Lot. There they are. When Sabalath, the Horbonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. There's the problem. The devil didn't like that somebody showed up to take care of God's people. And by doing that, he knew that God's people were going to rise up and build and be everything that God wanted them to be. And he didn't want that. So the opposition comes. Let me tell you something. This is the second thing you want to go home with. You'll want to go home with the first thing, that everything in life adverse either builds character or reveals character. Here's the second thing you want to go home with. Forget everything else I said. Get those two things and go out of here, and you can forget the rest. You'll get by just on these two things. The second thing is this. It's no accident you got saved. And it is no accident that you're here. We saw it last week. God's man, God's place, God's timing, God's everything. And let me tell you something. God has a plan for your life. And you may not understand what that plan is. You may not realize that plan. You may not understand it, but I'm telling you, God has a plan for your life, and the devil understands it greater than you do, and the devil wants to do everything in his life right now while you're young to stop you from fulfilling what God's plan is in your life. I don't know what God's going to do with you. I know that God's programs a local church, and I know that God's put you here, and I know that God, this is the place where we work from here, and we build from here, and we train from here, and we build character from here, and we go through the tough time together, and this is why this is your place of protection. But I'm telling you right now, God has something that He wants to accomplish in your life. I have no idea what it is. I don't know what He wants to do, but I'm telling you, it's something, and the devil wants to stop it. And just as, and just as uh, uh, this guy down here in Tan Sabalat, just as he was grieved that somebody wanted to do something with God's people, there's people in your life that aren't happy the fact that you're excited about what God's doing in your life. There's people who have made a mess out of their life. And very frankly, they don't like the fact that your life is on track with God. They made a mess out of their life and they do not like the fact, they do not like the fact, they do not care for the fact that you are doing what's right because every time they see you, it's nothing personal. Please don't take it personal. Don't get personal with it. They're not mad at you. They don't hate you. They hate what's inside you. And every time they see you doing right, it reminds them and convicts them that they are not doing right. That's it. It's simple. Romans chapter 14 verse 7 says that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. And saved people today, out of fellowship, will not like the fact that you're in church this morning, that you show up, that you get the Word of God, that you carry your Bible, you love your Bible, and you have decided to follow the Lord Jesus. They ain't going to like it. Unsaved people ain't going to like it because it puts them under conviction that they're lost and the Holy Spirit of God in both cases works on them through you and you are going to pay the price for it. So what? Whatever price you pay isn't a millionth of a tenth of a percent of the price that he paid. It's part of it. It's part of it. Unsaved people get under conviction by even being around them. Saved people even worse. Because they're saved. Boy, there's nothing worse in this world than a saved person out of fellowship with God. They're miserable. And their misery is like a big, broad paintbrush, and they want to paint on everybody that way. But, oh, let me tell you something. You get a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife that is out of touch with God or lost, and you're saved and you got to do what's right, it's going to be just like here, and it's going to go the same way. And the devil is going to use them. I mean, I'm not saying that they stay up late at night in the devil in the garage with a candle and a flashlight saying, okay, what do you want me to do tomorrow? I'm not talking about that. The devil uses them unknowingly. 
the, the, the world, the conviction of God forces them. That's why the greatest thing you can do is stand strong for the Lord. The greatest thing, and I'm going to show you how to do it here in just a minute. There's three things that, that, that they do. And what they do will work for you. But I want you to understand the opposition. Because God has a plan for you. God has something that He wants to accomplish in your life. That's why you're here. Some of you have young kids. Those kids are going to grow up someday in a world that is godless. The only godly thing they're going to probably see is what you do with them. Now, here's how it goes. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Here's how it goes. It always goes this way. But when Sambalet, the Horbonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? You see, the first thing they do is laugh at him. They make fun of him. Now let me tell you why somebody will belittle you. Let me tell you why somebody will make fun of you for what you believe. And maybe it's somebody that's close. I remember as a young Christian, I remember as a young Christian, you know, trying to grow up and doing what's right. Some of the closest people in my family in my life that I thought I'd be happy about it, and they weren't happy when I wasn't doing what's right. Now suddenly when I get on fire for God, they're not happy either. You know why they weren't happy? Because they weren't on fire for God. People want you to be as miserable as they are. And they make fun of you. They'll call you names. They'll belittle you. They do that to discourage you. Oh, did you get religion, did you? How stupid religion is. You know anybody with a brain can't really believe all that junk? That's what he did here. When he came down in, over in chapter 4, verse 3, they said, oh, they built the wall, and they're laughing and making fun. This one guy says, build the wall. He said, well, that bunch of feeble Jews. He said, if a fox went up and banged into that wall, he'd knock it down. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, I've heard it. Hey, preacher, you're smart. Where'd Cain get his wife? How'd all the animals get in the ark? Hey, where you going, preacher? What do you think? I met one time, I met one time years ago. I used to go with, with, with Bel Sabaka. Some of you know who he is. And we used to go to, uh, we used to go, and I used to drive for him in revivals around Ohio. And we take, uh, this old guy we took with us one time was a great guy. We stopped and got something to eat. And I was just a young Christian. But you see, those kind of things I saw build character in me. I'll never forget. We were sitting in a little truck stop down there outside of Steubenville, Ohio. Mel was eating. We went to get a piece of pie, you know, after the service. We were going to home and get some coffee, you know. I was just a young guy and I didn't know anything. I'll never forget, we're sitting around, the three of us, around that table. And a uh, bunch of old truck drivers over there, you know, taking God's name in vain and all this. And we got our pie, food, whatever. And, and uh, we, we bowed our heads and Mel asked the blessing. And, you know, you could hear him, you know, all over the place. I mean, he was loud, you know. And, and uh, we were done preaching. We were down there thinking, and I'm just, all these truck drivers. I mean, they're like 10 feet tall, you know. And I thought, sure, that night I was going to die. And one of them swung around on the, bar, on, a, on the stool at the counter and says, Hey! He says, said to the, the, the elderly guy, Hey, old man, he says, does, does, where you come from? Does everybody pray like that for to eat? Ha, 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 I was like, rattle, you know, I'm like, oh, boy. The old man would look around and say, No, nah, son, the hogs don't. <laughs> no, nah, the hogs don't. The guy just turned on that sheet and shut up and do what he did. I thought he was going to die. But you know what that did for me? That showed me a man that stood up in a whole place with a bunch of big guys that he loved God more and was more in love with God than being afraid of what was being said. Now that did something for me. I never forgot that. In fact, I, I, I would go home as a young Christian. I'd pretend I, I'd walk the dog down the street, you know, or, and I'd walk late at night, you know, and I'd be thinking that thing through and I'd be saying, what would I have done? And I'd yell out in the middle of the night, dogs don't! You know, and, and you know, people look out the window, you know, and I was in it, man. It, it motivated me. Got me to place some 40 years later. I'd say the hogs don't. And you want to step outside? I mean, you wait with me, but you know what? I'll tell you what. The hogs don't. You can't be afraid to take a stand for the Lord. You can't be afraid to take a stand for the Lord. Opposition is going to come. It's going to come from They're going to laugh at you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. You've got to be, you know, I mean, you've got to be smarter than the opposition. Come into work and say, hey, preacher, what's up? Heaven, heaven's up, heaven's up. Hell's down, but heaven's up. Hey, preacher, what's new? Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 22. Oh, you got to read about it. Oh, man, don't, don't take it from them. And all you do is infuriate them. 
guy said something one time. He says, why did you do that the way you did it? And he said, because it makes people mad. I like making people mad. You want to make your opposition mad? Don't, don't just come apart. Don't just come apart. That's what they want. That's why they're doing it. They want to see you fold up like a broken accordion. Don't come apart. Stand up. You want to get back at them? You don't have to hit them. You don't have to shoot them. You don't have to get a club and beat them. All you got to do is stand up and say, the hogs don't. They laughed at him. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to make fun of you. I'll tell you the the next thing they did in that chapter. False accusations. They said, hey, you're going to rebel against the king, are you? That's what we're going to tell everybody. You're down there rebelling against the king, the civil authority. They weren't. But you know what they're going to say to you? Why? Because you go to church now, you think you're better than everybody else? You think you're better than me? Why? You're going over to that, that old past Baptist church? Well, that's a cult. You're a cult. Well, you're just following that man over there. You're just, you're just following somebody. I mean, false accusations. It'll, they'll do it every time. Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You follow me as long as I'm following God. When I quit following God, quit following me. It had nothing to do with me. It has to do with the book and the God that you're following. But you know what? They're going to make it. And you need to understand that. Because you know what happens? We all... Like, we, we, none of us like adversity. Nobody likes people to be mad. Nobody likes things to say. But you go to work in the morning and, you know, you like people to be positive. You don't like somebody coming up and saying, boy, you really had a bad hair day today, didn't you? You know, you don't like that. It ruins your whole day. You don't like somebody coming up and saying, that's a nice dress. Too bad they didn't have it in your size. You don't like that. It ruins your whole day. We don't like adversity. We like to get along. We like to be positive. And when somebody close to us brings adversity because we're trying to do what's right, oh, it hurts. It bothers you. Oh, they laughed them to scorn. They made false accusations. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, they conspired against them. They conspired against them. I'm going to tell you something. The devil will do all kinds of things to keep you out of church, keep you from Bible study. I know some of you have to work and some of you have natural things. That you have. I mean, I'm not talking about that. He'll do everything in the world to keep you from reading your Bible. You'll sit down and you'll say, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down here and I'm going to study my Bible tonight. About that time, a phone off and be somewhat a friend of yours or your mother or your father. And they'll, and, you, and, and they'll say, hey, we want you to do this. Or, hey, can you do this? Or, hey, this, that. And you know what you'll do? You'll hang up the phone and say, okay, I'll be right over and put your Bible away. And I'm not saying there are times you do that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that at times. Um, bottom line is this. God needs to come first in your life. And those kind of things build character. I'm telling you, folks, everything in life. Adverse as a Christian either builds character or reveals character. The devil knows our weaknesses. He, he does all of this. He do everything. He'll bring all these opposition comes. He wanted to stop the Jews because the bottom line, the real problem was it grieved him exceedingly that there was a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And just today, my friend, the opposition is grieved that there's a church that wants to seek your welfare as a child of God. And the devil knows you're tender. The devil knows you're vulnerable. The devil knows as a young Christian you're impressionable. The devil knows maybe you're not real strong and you get somebody close to you or somebody in your life that jumps on you that shouldn't dump on you and gives you all kinds of problems. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. What do you do? What do you do? You fly tight formation. That's what you do. Don't be a lone wolf. Don't be out there all by yourself. Get in. Get to know people. Let people pray for you. Let people help you. I'm telling you right now, that's the only thing that's going to survive. That, 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 that is what you need to do. You have to understand that in this room, where the God's people who love you as one in the unity, there is the safety and everything that God wants you to have in this book, but you have to do it. The devil knows where to nail you. Now, I'm going to give you three things to do, and we're done. This is what they do. Three things to do. First thing you do is over here in chapter 4. First thing you need to do is you need to get an attitude. Quit wimping around here. Get an attitude. I don't mean get arrogant. Just get an attitude. Let me give you the attitude to get. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 14. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be ye not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, 
which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Get an attitude. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Fight for your brethren, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wife. Don't give up on them. Fight for them. In this church, in this little group, in this little body, fight for each other. Be there for each other. Realize you're tender, you're vulnerable, you're impressionable, and it hurts when a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a boyfriend or a girlfriend is opposition to what you're trying to do in your life. Knowing that God has a plan, get an attitude. Rise up. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Then the second thing, after you get an attitude, take a stand. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20. Then, I, then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. You know what he said? He said, you know what? In spite of your opposition, we're going to rise up and build. We don't have to worry about you. God is going to prosper us. And in spite of what you say or what you're going to do, we're going to rise up and build. But you, sir, have no portion with us. You have nothing to say in it. God is the God of my life. And I'm going to do what God wants me to do. You take a stand. You take a stand. Then the third thing, get a mindset. Get an attitude, take a stand, get a mindset. Look at chapter 4. This is what they did. It works. In fact, of all the opposition, after everything is said and done, here's what he says. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together under the half thereof, here it comes, for the people had a mind to work. Get the right mind. Understand that this mind that was in you will be also in Christ Jesus. Get the right mind. A mind to do the work of God. A mind to work. A mind to do the Word of God. Take a stand. Get an attitude. Realize that God is preparing you for something to do. No matter how much you love them, no matter how much what they are to you, nothing or nobody should stand in between you building the character in your life that's going to bring you to the place where you can fulfill God's destiny in your life. Because let me tell you something, friend. When it's all said and done at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be nobody standing there but you. And you will give an account based on what you did with the Word of God to overcome the opposition. Right attitude. Right stand, right mind. The opposition will come. It'll come. But the key of us being a strong church <clears throat> is the oneness. Pulling it together. Flying tight formations. Doing what the Wallabies do. Doing what Dick Vermeil does. Building everybody into one that everybody covers everybody else. Pulling together. Protecting the brethren. Father, we thank you and praise you for all you do.